0: The teaching of Jesus often can seem ambiguous. It certainly did to his disciples. On one hand, he's doing things that only kings do. On the other hand, he's doing things that only priests do. On the other hand, he's saying things that only prophets say. He clearly was making claim on so many different levels but this seems so out of character. Uh, That second worship song we sang this morning said, God does not envy, God does not boast, and yet he's a king. The disciples were flummoxed. They had no idea, the vast majority of the time, what Jesus was talking about at all. My experience has been, even in the 21st century, many of us do, still struggle with what we perceive to be the ambiguity of the teaching of Jesus. And yet, that's what we have been striving to accomplish through this little jaunt through the Gospel of Luke, which has taken us a while, and we're not near finished. But we have come to a very significant point. We've come to this final week of his life on earth before he would go to the cross. Again, a big picture in their minds. They had no idea this was coming. They assumed he was going to walk in. He was going to take over the Romans, whoever their overlords were at that time. It happened to be Rome at the time of the disciples in Jesus' time on earth. Their expectations were they were going to be part of a new administration. He was going to be the king that was going to rule because they had seen in their prophets THAT THERE WAS A KING THAT WOULD COME THAT WOULD BE A FOREVER KING. NOW, HOW THEY PERCEIVED FOREVER KING, WAS IT JUST THEIR LIFETIME? MOST, most OF THEM WERE CONCERNED ABOUT THEIR LIFETIME. THEY WEREN'T LOOKING BEYOND THE HORIZON. THEY CERTAINLY WEREN'T LOOKING BEYOND THE HORIZON TO SEE THE NATIONS STREAMING TOWARDS A MESSIANIC FIGURE THAT WOULD COME OUT OF THE seed OF ABRAHAM THROUGH ISAAC AND THEN THROUGH JACOB they could not have perceived. This morning as I was thinking about this, I have a nice little outline prepared for you, which I am, uh, it's a nice task for me each week. I get up, I finish on Sunday, I get up on Monday, I start thinking ahead, I try to get a little formulated, a little outline. Uh, Many of you have been with me way prior to Church of the Red Door, and I kind of prefer freestyling a little bit, you know, and kind of going wherever I feel like the Spirit's leading. And some of you actually say you prefer that, and some of you say, man, we're glad he doesn't do that anymore. So I'm going to at least satisfy half of you here today. Uh, I feel a little need to freestyle. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a Southern California vibe I'm feeling this morning. So uh, if I'm going to do that, then we need to pray a little bit, Uh, I think. I think. Lord Jesus, we are in desperate need of your Spirit. We cannot navigate the, the the life that you've given us, the new covenant life that you've given us without the Spirit, uh, the two are incompatible. The nation of Israel attempted for years to live under the law. It didn't work. It brought no one to righteousness. In fact, it only condemned them, as the Apostle Paul had said in Second Corinthians 3. It was a ministry of death and condemnation. And yet you laid down your life. And what we're going to be talking about, the beginning of the week, leading to the laying down of your life, and in doing so, you secured something way beyond the horizon of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romano, well beyond any of those, well, those nations that have risen and fallen. And Lord, your name still reigns supreme. You had it exactly right. What else would we expect? But for us to understand it, we need the guidance of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you would go to Luke chapter 19... Many refer to this as the triumphal entry. Uh, it's chronicled in all four Gospels in different ways. And in some ways, as is the case with the gospel narratives, there seem at times to be some conflicts. There are no conflicts. But one of the gospels said there was a donkey and a colt, and another just says they went and got a donkey, and then, you know, and then some say they threw down palm branches, others say they just threw down their coats. That's just natural. This this gives credibility, in fact, to the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, although there were only two that probably witnessed this. Mark and Luke probably wouldn't have been, eyewitnesses would have garnered the information through secondhand sources. Nevertheless, because we're going through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to unpack it from Luke's perspective. Verse 28, verse 28. Now remember, he's just come out of Jericho, he's starting to ascend. Why do you say ascend? Because if you're gonna go to Jerusalem, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that especially if you're coming from the Dead Sea side, it's a very natural ascent. I mean, you're really rising. You could be, you know, 85, 90 degrees in December by the Sea of Galilee, excuse me, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, said Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and then by the time you get up to Jerusalem, it could be 20, 30, maybe even 35 degrees cooler. Not too distal nerves. I've said before, from laying out by the pool in Palm Springs, taking the tram up to the top of the mountain, and then going, oh, why, why am I still wearing my Speedo here? Uh, by the way, as your pastor, please do not wear a Speedo up on the tram or by the pool for that matter. But uh, that's your choice. That's your choice. So uh, they're beginning the ascent. They've come out of Jericho. They've had the uh, encounter with Zacchaeus. They've had the encounter with Bartimaeus formerly blind Bartimaeus, and now we get this, verse 28. After he'd said these things, he was going on ahead, again, going up to Jerusalem. There's literal up in that, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you there as you enter and you will find a cult tied on which no one yet has ever sat. <laughs> untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. Boy, there's about two or three sermons right there. The Lord has need of it. Just tell them the Lord has need of it and and they'll know. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, naturally, well, why are you untying our colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Excuse me, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and Jesus put Jesus on it. And he was going and they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, this is important, blessed is the king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace, very important, remember the word peace, peace in heaven, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. For a long time as I was, you know, I remember reading this for the first time and I imagine Jesus just, that's like that prophetic vibe he's got working. He can see into the future, and he knows that there's going to be a a cult tide there, and certainly he's aware of the prophecies, as we'll get into next week of Zechariah 9. He's aware that this was exactly what the prophet Zechariah had seen. Seeing a king coming mounted on a a cult, even a donkey, seems to indicate two animals there in the prophet of Zechariah. And I always just thought, well, he knew it, and then he just, he could see it. He is like a seer. He could see into the future. Chances are, uh, the more I really uh, in, kind of investigated this and started thinking about where most theologians come down, uh, most think he had probably orchestrated this. He had, he had taken this path many times, uh, living in Bethany in the house of Lazarus. They, we don't know exactly where Bethphage was, but they were somewhat close. But this is just up over the top, and... If you've ever been to Israel, this is the spot by the way that you get uh, assaulted by people trying to sell you maps and trinkets although that is the majority experience in the in Israel but especially this kind of lookout point it's where all the people take the pictures of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and those pictures that you get that are so symbolic just, just, it's a visceral response when you see it, see the big golden dome. And it's from this vantage point, just, just beyond that is Bethany. And then they start working their way down. Now it's filled with uh, above ground tombs. And, and, and this is called the Kidron Valley. Jesus would have taken this. Why? Because he was often staying in Bethany. And if you go back and break out that word etymologically, Bethany is the house, really the house of the poor. It was a poor house. He wouldn't have been staying at the Four Seasons. He was staying with a poor family in a relatively poor place in Jerusalem, not something most kings would do. That's why I say there was a certain ambiguity. Jesus, as we will see a little bit later, will turn to Pilate and and respond, are you a king? And his response would be yes. And then even on the cross, they would nail him up on the cross, and have king of the Jews in a mocking way, right? I mean, what king hangs out in Bethany with those narrowly wells? I mean, if you were if you were truly a king, uh, we would certainly see that, the religious elite, and you would be ushered into some of the finest accommodations that Jerusalem at that time had to offer. This is just a, an incongruent picture here. We just don't see king and donkeys and all this other and living with you know staying in bethany and but i I believe that jesus had had seen probably this family that owned this small animal or in the case really two animals if you look at the other gospels and uh, they probably knew who he was and that they probably were already believing into him being the lord And uh, Jesus might've even had a conversation. And at first I kind of, there was a retrenchment there. It was was almost like, I don't know if I wanna believe that, that Jesus had orchestrated this because was he just trying to, you know, go back and read the prophets and then set up some of these things that he could walk them out? No, I think he was very clear that this king did in fact need a parade because that's what it was. It was a parade. We have parades of all kinds now. And the ones that I remember the most vividly are usually in black and white because the old ticker tape parades. And as a golf professional, you'd see Ben Hogan or whoever after winning a big tournament now, they in a way wouldn't do that now for a major champion. But back then they'd bring him back home and there were at moments ticker tape parades where they would, you know, these high rises and throw out all the confetti and everything. And you get these grand old black and white pictures of these parades. This was something akin to that. But there was something very unique about this because he was mounted on a donkey. (laughs) But by the way, allow me to say, he's not always going to be mounted on a donkey. If we go all the way to the end of the book, he's going to come back again, and he won't be on a donkey, he'll be on a horse. Now whether that's literal, figurative, I don't know, but it's a picture, it speaks something to us. It speaks us to about the reality of who Jesus was and it even more so speaks to the reality of what his mission was and he knew it but virtually nobody else knew it at all and so they were well they were distracted I think it's important to see and this is where I'm going to kind of go into the freestyle world of of this morning uh, as I was even contemplating this and I was ready and I was thinking kind of through this last night and I just I felt so overwhelmed. I said, look, we need to understand that they did anticipate a king, and they anticipated that king was going to be messianic, meaning the Messiah that would save Israel. And the language was conflated. It was unusual language. And I think if we can go back and establish and understand, we won't just say, well, Palm Sunday, oh, yeah, that's where Jesus rides in. And they give him a little, you know, they throw down their palm branches or whatever in their coats. And then that begins the final week we need to understand something more and i think if we'll go down this road this will be compelling to you it will deepen your faith and it will deepen your worship again i think one of the great crimes of the 21st century i just and i see it in my own life i i work hard to worship But I see a movement away from what I would call true worship. We just don't. We just don't have a worshipful society. We're so used to worshiping other things that it's challenging to turn and rivet our attention. And I'm talking full attention to worship. It doesn't just have to be corporate worship. We have that. I hope that you adopt a spirit of worship and corporate worship here on Sunday mornings. But to have the full understanding of who Jesus was and then what He sacrificed though he was that person it's the it's the very story that we're so drawn to it's always the picture. That's why we have, again, so many superhero movies everywhere. The Marvel comics and this and this, because we love seeing people with extraordinary powers that come down and lay down their own lives in some way for a people that don't even like them. I get mad when I watch Spider-Man and the whole people are always trying to throw him in jail or Batman and he becomes the bad guy. So he's laboring against his own people while at the same time he's saving them and they don't even know it. Did you realize that young people who are attracted to Marvel comics and all that, or what they're really attracted to is Jesus, and yet the narrative's been flipped today and marginalized, and evangelicals are all weird and political and all that, and many of them are and shouldn't be, and we miss the display of Jesus as the donkey-riding king. The very... We, the narrative has already been crafted. Jesus and what people are after when they're looking at these modern-day superheroes—they don't realize it, but they're longing for that to actually exist in real life. Not just people who can go. My, uh, Emerson has his little things, and he's always going choo, 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 shooting, you know, spider webs out of his, you know. And to this day, I still don't. Well, only one person I know that can shoot out spider webs, and she was pretty nasty. But no, I didn't. I'm just kidding. But people don't shoot out spider webs out of you know and swing from buildings, and so we have to fictionalize it. This is not fictionalized. This is the story that you always wanted to be true. And if we understand it a little bit more, you will become more of a worshipper of not just Jesus the king, but also God incarnate on the back of a cult. So I'm going to take you back to Second Samuel chapter 7, and I think if we can unpack this a little bit, and I'm going to set the stage for you just a smidge here. If you'll remember a number of years back, and, and, and some of you said, and I think of Kelly here's to, here today, and he thought, he and Kathy thought this was one of the more impactful, at least what they told me, impactful messages that they had ever heard, is it related to the Ark of the Covenant being brought into, into Jerusalem, and they put it on a cart, and the poor guy started to kind of fall off, and poor guy who just started trying to put his hand out there to catch it, and then God struck him instantly, which seemed like a real miscarriage of justice. And that had happened in the previous couple of chapters, and David was really concerned about getting the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God, into Jerusalem, and it had been confiscated by the Philistines, and then it sat in somebody's house, and he actually became very blessed while he had it in his house. Uh, But he said, it's time to get the Ark of the Covenant back. And so they had kind of reestablished the Ark of the Covenant, and now he was beginning to talk about wanting to build uh, temple. In fact, he felt he felt a little guilty because he was saying, "You know, I live in my cedar paneled house, and the and God's the Ark of the Covenant, which possesses, you know, symbolically and in some ways literally, but not in a holistic way, uh, symbolically represents the very presence of God, uh, God in a box, if you will." And uh, and here, and, and he's out with tent curtains and in and in a wandering, still kind of tabernacle. That's what had happened. When they brought it out of the wilderness and had never been placed in a glorious, a glorious temple, and so he had desired to build that, and it's the first picture we get of this prophet Nathan, who would play a big role in his sin later in his David's life. And Nathan said, "It's good that you have that desire in your heart, David. Why don't you just go ahead and do that?" And yet that night, as Nathan went to bed, God corrected him and said, "No, David is not going to be the one who's going to build the temple." It's going to be somebody else after him. And then it gets kind of murky, the languages. We'll read it here. And is it talking about Solomon? Because Solomon was definitely the one who built him this glorious, amazing temple. But it was also not Solomon. In some ways, it was a dual fulfillment. It was parallelism. You can use all these fancy theological terms. But the fact of the matter is... He said, no, David, and it doesn't state it here, but elsewhere you'll see it's too much blood on your hands. So it's going to be a descendant after you that will build the temple. You ready? Let's read because if we understand foundationally this picture, you will understand Jesus who is now going to walk in. Well, he's going to ride in, set up a parade potentially for himself, and then, but he's going to come mounted on a donkey. Again, can you see the <laughs> challenges of trying to comprehend what's really going on here? So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete, <clears throat> David, and you lie down with your fathers, Nathan speaking, God through the prophet Nathan, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. Now that's important because if... Jesus didn't come from the Davidic line; then he was not this guy. He might have been some guru, teacher, rabbi guy, but he wasn't this guy. He had to be from the loins of David, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay. Well, so far so good. That would have, that could be as we're projecting out, you know, some thousand years later, Jesus but it also could have been contemporary, contemporaneous with what they're saying. It could have been Solomon just around the corner. And then it goes on in verse 13 to say, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, stop for a minute, forever. Now that gets a little more murky. That gets a little bit harder to sustain, especially what we know from... 1 Kings chapter 11 which talks about at least when he finished the temple it was like okay this is it this is you know he basically almost made claim to this and yet he started marrying other wives that he was prohibited from he started worshipping other gods could this, could Solomon be the fulfillment of this kind of promise a forever king in part in a literal way but certainly not in my view the in, Encompassing the full narrative, the full unpacking of what Nathan is saying here, as God's saying through the prophet Nathan. And then he says something even more fascinating, verse 14 I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. A lot of people want to know, uh, my Jewish friends, uh, many others that struggle with the deity of God, how is Jesus God's son? It's language here. It was often used that a king of Israel, if you look back in, they sometimes referred to as the son of God. Uh, but we'd say that kind of casually. And many of my friends, uh, certainly Jewish friends, in fact, I've had one of my Jewish friends ask me, you know, what are you, you know, God's having babies or, you know, what's happening up there? And who's the mother God? And then they're having children. And that sounds more like kind of the Greeks and all their kind of pantheon of gods that they might have had what does that even mean he will be a son to me well just realize when you come to the New Testament it's not unusual language if you understand and are embedded in the Tanakh or the what we would call the Old Testament and it says when he commits iniquity now this really gets challenging <laughs> what is that because Jesus didn't commit iniquity so this clearly has to be back on Solomon now so are they, Going in and out, Solomon and maybe this potential messianic figure. I'm going to give you my take on that in a minute. It says, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed, when I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever Now it seems to go away from Solomon because you had an end to the kings. We don't have any kings of Israel anymore. Or do we? Is there one king of Israel that fits the bill? And this thing, do you understand what I mean by a little bit of ambiguity? So there are two things I think as we look at this that we need to try to unpack in our own minds. first of all, they're going to build a house, and then second of all, uh, what is this, this need to correct him and all that? Where does all that come from? Because either this finds fulfillment in the descendants of David, specifically Solomon, or by extension all kind of symbolically all the descendants of David that would, become, that would rise to the throne. And yet we know there were only about five righteous kings, all of them from the southern tribe, none of them from the ten northern tribes. They never had one righteous king. And then the, even the splitting of the kingdoms after, you know, after the time of Solomon and, and all that, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam and, and all that is just a big mess. I mean, how does this find fulfillment in anybody? Or, or did Nathan get it wrong? Well, Jesus is saying, no, Nathan got it right and it's me. That's what's happening here. Whether you're aware of it or not, Jesus is orchestrating a parade for himself and it's so out of character Because Jesus, as we saw in that song, doesn't envy and doesn't boast, and he doesn't have an ego that needs, you know, what he's doing, whether you're aware of it or not, he's claiming to be. Now, catch this. There are two rivers that flow through the Old Covenant. One is a clear, as we'll see this morning, a clear anticipation of a king, even a messianic king. And the other one is a strange, somewhat derived picture of a suffering servant. Sometimes the stories include both, like Joseph, who became a slave to, his, to the Egyptians and was, was humbled in many different ways, and then rose to like, looking like a king to save his people. You see it sometimes in type in the Old Testament, but there are two rivers. And look, his disciples, they only saw one river. And Jesus kept talking about this suffering servant river over here and the humility of it, and they just go, well, he's a little off his game today. I don't think he really understands what he's saying. I, I you know, well, you know he's he's mystical, and you know we, we can't really understand this what Jesus is saying, but we're going to stick to the king stuff where he overthrows a, and he, he comes mounted on a horse, not a donkey, even though the clear teaching of the Old Testament was that uh, well, somehow it would be both, and it's fascinating to me. That we can see the both together, and Jesus is saying, "I'm both. I'm both a suffering servant and the King. He's the King because he needs a parade, and he needs to show them that a parade it only befits a King. But he's riding a donkey to say that I'm also the suffering servant, which nobody saw coming. He's Spider-Man. He's suffering. He's got all the powers. He's demonstrated he can swing from buildings. He can, he can." He can walk across the water. He can heal the sick. He can can do all those kinds of things. And yet, the Son of Man is going to lay down His life. Rich from Montana here brought me this beautiful, beautiful gift this morning. I will treasure this, Rich. Thank you. It's it's a, a Roman nail from the time of Jesus. And a little... A little coin that would have been, again, contemporaneous, contemporaneous with the time of Jesus, uh, a, a widow's mite, if you will, and it, it, and how do I know this? Is well because I even have a letter of authentic, authentic, authenticity here, and so Rich, thank you. But nobody wanted to see that; they didn't see their king having nails driven into his hands, but the prophets had. He'll be pierced through for our transgressions, but that's the suffering servant. That's not the king. See, whether you're aware or not, Jesus is saying it's both, and that's what the triumphal entry. That's why this king needed a parade. Needed a parade. I want to take you back now, uh, just a bit, to. Allow maybe you have some Jewish viewers here. I don't know. I have many Jewish friends. Uh, I I love the nation. Uh, I want to see, I want to see Israel come to know the true and one and only Messiah that was a light to the nations. I always challenge my Jewish friends with the same thing: Show me one other messianic figure ever. If you really believe your prophets, that every every nation would bow before. And here 2,000 years later, there's not a nation that you can't find someone, some Gentile, some non-Jew that will bow before. Not just Israel as a geopolitical entity or anything. No, no, no. That will bow before and say, this, "This, well, this king that came riding on a donkey has changed my life. And I want to just run through a litany. None of them are going to come up here, but I want to run through a litany of verses that may help you. So if you're taking notes, get ready, we're going to make this pretty rapid fire, okay? And then we'll, we'll pick this up next week. But Psalm chapter 89, Psalm chapter 89, I just want to take you to a few places to, many will say, well, no, they, they, didn't, really, uh, they didn't really see the, a king being the actual Messiah. That is just not biblically accurate. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and and the prophets had seen it, and they'd seen it over and over and over. I'm going to take you to Psalm 89. I just want to read verse 51. Psalm 89. I don't have time to unpack the context for all this. We're just going to run through some verses. Uh, It says, with which thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of thine anointed. And, And again, what does that even mean? It's a picture of uh, the anointed one, that's what Christ means, anointed, the Messiah figure. And yet they have reproached the footsteps of this anointed one. Or Psalm 132 17. Psalm 132 17. Um, allow me. Just here it says in Psalm 132:17. And again, this would have been a song that they would have part of the song of Psalms of ascent or the songs of ascent as they would have been traveling up to Jerusalem. This was just normative for many Jewish people as they would travel up to go to Passover or whatever, and they would have been chanting things like this. 17. Uh, there I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. Now this is again uh, coming right out of the Samuel. It's called the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David, and it's, and it's not dependent upon his, his good behavior. It's an unconditional covenant. He says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. He says, his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Again, out of David is going to come forth a king. There was an expectation And this is something anointed. This is something more than Solomon ever could have even touched. This is something profound. It's an anointed one, and and he's going to have this crown, and it's going to be shining. If you you remember, there's the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus allowed them just for a moment to see the shining nature of who he really was, just three of them, Peter, James, and John. He became apparent to them. This is not just a miracle-working teacher. This is something else, but they still couldn't understand it. Let's go to Isaiah 9, of course. Well, there's no question that we will look at this over what we would call Christmas time. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, this is about as... There's not a year that we don't look at this ever because it just gives us foundation for why why we celebrate Jesus' birth. Isaiah chapter 9, look down in verse 6 and 7. It says, For a child will be born to us, A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And now catch this, for those of you who don't believe in the divinity of this messianic figure, mighty God, okay? Eternal Father. Now remember when we saw peace as we looked at that? Coming in peace, Uh, Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government, no end. So it's not dependent, you know, a good king might reign 40 years in Israel. No, 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 no end to this establishment of this. This is a forever kingdom, okay? And Isaiah was seeing it clearly. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and how long? Forevermore. This should encourage you. You should be jumping out of your seats this morning. Because if it was just an override of the Roman dictate, then that's that happened. that was been over a long time. But this goes right into the 21st century, right into the Coachella Valley, right into the a place where there's incredible wealth. I mean, we have more kings today here in this valley than probably any collection of places in the world. They're economic kings. They're not necessarily military or Certainly not a theocracy anymore, but we have economic kings all over this valley. People that are worth billions, with a B, billions of dollars, that find themselves right here in this unique place in the world called the Coachella Valley. And he says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So now just picture this. I mean, I'm not done yet because there's many more places we're going to look. But what is Jesus making? He's making the claim to be this messianic figure. He's making the claim to be the forever king, a kingdom that will have no end. But he knows it's not a literal visible kingdom because as we'll see over the next two weeks, it has to include everyone, all nations, all languages, everything. It had to do that. So he couldn't come in in triumph because that would just displace the Romans. He had to come in on a colt, on a donkey. Why? It's because he had to come in peace. He was bearing a message of peace, how you can make peace with the creator of your soul. And it's going to cost him everything. If you go back uh, if you if you had a triumphant if you if you overran a people, you would have your king. The kings typically weren't on the front lines, many of them would have been holding back and if you overran a people and you were going to celebrate your king would come riding in on a horse, never a donkey. but there were during the time of Jesus many would walk in if they were ambassadors to a foreign nation, they would come in if they wanted to negotiate or talk terms of peace. They would come in on a donkey. They wouldn't come riding in on a horse. They would come mounted on a donkey, right? But the king would never do that, but an ambassador would do. A a lower-level person would have done that, and they would have come in to negotiate to see if that foreign country would be willing to live up under whatever, whatever parameters that the other government had decided to have. Jesus came in as an ambassador of peace, but he had a parade because he needed both. He could have just done it in the dark of night and come in on a donkey. But he needed a kingly procession and he needed a, a the humble donkey to ride in as an ambassador of peace. Are you with me? This should be shaking you to your core. This is what again Isaiah is saying. Just turn over to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and why the Davidic line is so important, and how we can trace this back to 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant. So, Isaiah chapter 11 says, Then a shoot will spring, verse 1, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness, and it goes on. So you do see that you say, well, they weren't really expecting that there'd be a messianic figure, that's not, you know, they're, they're, they're." no, it's exactly Jesus is walking out to the T everything that had been written king suffering servant both it's just it's insane but it's what we long for what's going to make heaven heaven a king who does not envy and does not boast no, it's not going to have somebody that's going to say, I rose to political power, so he, he always felt pretty insecure, you know, and he needed people to, you know, bow down to him and all that kind of thing. And that usually descends into, you know, some forms of chaos. Uh, we, we look back fondly. If you look back at all the leaders, you always look back for those that really laid down their life for a principle or a cause, not someone who just tried to rise. And, and you could tell they just, it's more about fame than it is about service and laying down their life. Wouldn't you love just to have some candidate that would emerge even in the scene realm that is so humble and and doesn't envy and is so self-sacrificing and just lay down their whole life uh, just to serve? Wouldn't you love that? We'll take that to the the millionth degree, and then you just can maybe see Jesus and his nature and who he was. He needed a parade, but it had to be on the back of a donkey. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 42. Let's go to Isaiah 42. Everybody hanging in there? Wake up your neighbor. Seventh inning stretch. Isaiah 42. Uh, look, look at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice, justice to the nations. If Jesus had just con- come in and... and started a revolt and they had overtaken the Romans and he'd gotten consensus? The nations wouldn't have even known anything about it. It had just been some little uprising off in the middle of this navel of the world. Jesus knew this revolved around the nations, didn't he? I mean, look look over at verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people the same messianic figure, this king, and as a light to the nations. That's Jesus' king. That's Jesus' king. How about Isaiah 55? And again, I mean, this 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 is no tour de force. I mean, we could really unpack this forever. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you According to the faithful mercy shown to David, again, and this is quoted in Acts 13, by the way, behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Now, again, just you cannot say the prophets didn't see a king coming. And not just another king like Solomon, a forever king that would set up a forever kingdom that would impact all the way to the 21st century, halfway around the world, Palm Desert, California, Frank Sinatra and Cook, right here, amphitheater, Jesus was thinking about us. And he needed to prove that he was a king. Well, he didn't need to prove anything, but he needed them to understand that he was a king. So he welcomed and probably even set up this little parade, but knowing that it wouldn't be long and a, and a nail like in this box would be driven into his hands and his feet. Well, I don't like to worship, you know, I'm raising my hands and all that. How could you not? I love the team. You can't go... you. If, look at them, and I've, I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it, if you're pulling for somebody, and you want some of your team to win or something, and then you finally win the championship, or you cross, I and mean, I was watching a couple of these games the other night, you know, this Alabama, which, no offense, but I pull against Alabama at every chance I get, but, you know, and as soon as anything good happens, it's just everybody, and they take pictures, or, or behind a green at Augusta, the winning putt, or whatever, they take pictures, and everybody's like this, and they're like, ah! and there's people that don't even know, they're just caught up in the moment of worship because it's like that's an extraordinary feat. For getting a ball into a hole or taking a pigskin across the line, and that's somehow, ah, but then we come in here and then we think about what Jesus did as the ultimate sacrifice and the, who was the ultimate king of the universe. And we're like, yeah, you know, I really don't. don't, Look at that guy over there. He's got his hand up, you know. I don't know about that. I mean, come on, church at the red door. Faith cannot not be emotive if you understand it. And that's the key. We must understand who it is that we worship. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Oh, we could just go on and on, and everybody says, you are going on and on. (laughs) Jeremiah 23. This is beautiful. Catch this. Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. Jeremiah's living some 400 years after David. Do you think he's thinking about Solomon Or any of the kings that have walked, even the reasonably righteous, no. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, read verse 7, by the way. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. They're going to quit talking about that exodus and talk about this. But as the Lord lives, who brought us up, led led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north and from all the countries where I've driven them, and they will live on their own soil. Try to spiritualize that if you want. But in 1948, Israel became a nation again, as declared by Ben-Gurion. And I think in absolute perfect consistency with this. And what I see in Scripture is that he will bring them back to their land, and then a, a movement will begin. He'll begin to pour out his spirit on, on on not only just people, the Jewish people, but also people around them. I got a report this week that was sent to me by our, uh, our Women's National Ministry Director at Lynx, and I appreciate Meredith, and Meredith sent me just a little article, and I, and I, you know, I spent that three weeks talking about this whole Middle East crisis, and I said, and I started one, and I knew it was a little provocative to the beginning, that's why I did it, but, you know, I love the Palestinians, I love the Palestinian people, it, you know, uh, and I love the Jewish people, and and she sent me an article, and I don't have an ability to substantiate this, but the article was from some, there are some, you know, there are some Christian, God has his little roots even in the Gaza Strip. And uh, it was reported from among some Christian ministries over there that 200 Palestinians last week had seen visions of Jesus and had given their lives to Jesus. Jesus came for the nations Do you understand that? Not just the Romans or whoever might be the adversary of Israel at any one given moment. Why would Jesus do that? Because this is who he is. This is who he is. The people, the nations, a light to the nations. And that includes those in the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, or just north of the border. And that includes my Jewish friends as well, and yours. And I'm unapologetic about that. I tell my Jewish friends all the time, I follow a Jewish rabbi. He changed my life. I believe he was the light of the world. I believe he was the long-awaited one that your forefathers and prophets had always seen. What can I say? And yet I still love you. Um, I can't finish it. And people say, we're shocked. I'm out of time. We're going to pick this up next week, and I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to answer the question next week, God willing. I'm going to answer, what does this mean? And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. What does that mean? That obviously can't be Jesus. Otherwise, that means Jesus would have had blemish. That would make him not the unblemished lamb. Therefore, his atonement, as well-intentioned as it may have been, if he was a sinner and not unblemished, it didn't it didn't have any efficacy. Are you with me? We have to address that. Was it just a picture of who Solomon was and then it flashes back and flashes? Maybe, but I think there's something deeper here, and we'll unpack that. And I'll show you a few more places in Scripture where we can go and look and see that when Jesus is doing this, this isn't just some random act, it is the culmination of of what has been viewed by all the forefathers, the Jewish forefathers, and all their prophets. All of them were seen these days, as the New Testament says. But even more, it was looking all the way to us in the 21st century. It includes us. We're part of the story. Or do we just want to live like David said? Should I just be living here in my own cedar house while the house of God And what does it mean that Jesus is going to rebuild the temple? He is rebuilding the temple. I told you, we're we're building a church building. That's not going to be a temple, but a temple will come there. We're a temple. This is a temple, living stones being built up into a dwelling place for God in the spirit. This is the building of the temple right here. And it's happening under the noses of horrific dictators all over the world. People who say you can't have even a page of the Bible wherever, whether it be North Korea, whoever the current, you know, activities of dictates and fascists all over the world, it's happening right under their noses. The temple's being built and every single nation has a light shining on them. If they only have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, it's not because it's not all right here. And we'll look at that a little bit more next week. (music)